Steven. Hi, Zach. Today we are, uh, we have early access to an alpha of this new chat uh, protocol called InPerson. That's uh, I-N-P-E-R-S-O-N. So it's actually really neat um, and anyone can get access to this just by going up to somebody and talking to them. That sounds scary. I mean, it is scary, but it's doable to get access to this early alpha uh, technology. Well, when you put it like that... <laughs> So, yeah, I went to the UW-Milwaukee Drag Show, which is the largest drag show in the Midwest, I am fairly certain. I had never been to a drag show before, and it was a really odd experience. Um, for those of you who don't know what a drag show is, uh, a bunch of drag queens and drag kings get up on a stage. Uh, generally, they are lip-syncing to a song. Some of them actually do sing. There was one uh, drag queen who drummed. And just generally get on the stage, raise money for charity, and have a fun time. It does sound fun. I mean, I'm not sure if I would ever participate, but it does sound like a good time for the audience. Yeah. I'd be, How many people were there? I am not entirely sure. Okay. Didn't like get the Hundreds, numbers. thousands? Maybe 1,000. All right. Upper hundreds. Yeah. That's significant. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, when you say you wouldn't participate, you mean you wouldn't like sit in the audience or you wouldn't get up on stage? No, I wouldn't get up on stage. I totally watch. Yeah, it's it's a good t- <laughs> good time to watch. Parabolic microphones are so freaking cool. Their actual function is not that cool. It, they're really good at picking up a specific spot of sound, a focal point, I guess, and. They are good at hearing one thing and one thing only and not anything else. They do this by having a cover on behind the actual microphone part, which is in a parabolic shape. And sound, when it hits that parabola, it will always, if it's coming from straight ahead, it will always hit that microphone no matter what angle it's coming from. Hmm. So, like, right now I'm imagining the dish... TV receptors. That's exactly what it looks like. And yeah, they use it in uh, sports to hear specific athletes or coaches. Uh, Law enforcement uses it to hear from distances away. It only picks up that one spot because of the way you form an ellipse, which a parabola is just part of of an ellipse. I mean, not really, but it can be if you cut it off. Mm. It can be a half of an ellipse. You can put two pins on a piece of paper, say, and put a string in between them, a loose string. If you take a pencil and pull the string tight and then go all the way around the two pins, all the while the string is tight, it will form an ellipse with two focal points. If you put a microphone at one of those focal points, it will always pick up the sound from the other focal point, which is so freaking cool because you can also, with that, uh have an elliptical pool table mm-hmm. in which you can always get it in the hole if you are in the other spot, no matter what. So could you also make a parabolic speaker that only plays sound to one specific place? Uh, yes. Assuming that you could make the speaker... Assuming that you're pointing the speaker at the wall 
mm-hmm. and not at the other focal point. Yeah. Otherwise, you're going to get some stuff stuff in the middle. But there are uh, things called whisper chambers, and it's really cool because there can be a hustling and bustling in between the two people, but because it's in the shape of an ellipse, you can stand in one place and you're, the person you're talking to can stand in another place, and you can basically whisper to them, and they'll hear you perfectly and almost not hear the other people in the middle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've, I've seen a few of those in architecture. Um, the one that I'm thinking of, I believe it was... Oh, God, I'm not sure where it was. But uh, they built it by accident. So just one day, one of the constructor people... Constructors? <laughs> what is the word that I'm looking for? Constructionists. Const- <laughs> constructionerists yeah. uh, was working and they dropped a hammer on one end of this big ellipse and the person on the other end like heard them muttering under their breath and turned around because they expected somebody to be like right next to them but they were on the other side of this whole big ellipse uh, and that's how they discovered that this was another whisper chamber that's cool where is this do you know i'm not sure all right it's in a hotel somewhere listeners if you know So, every annotated bibliography service I can find, like, with, like, three pages of Google, which is way more pages than I usually go to, I tried. They have all been bought by the same company called Chegg. And it's not a bad thing. Uh, It's, like, EasyBib is the one that comes to mind. It's still a good service. It still does what you want it to do. But... Um, there's no improvements being made and there are ads everywhere and it's making it quite hard to use, um, but still usable. So here's the idea. All right. Here's a business idea. We make an annotated bibliography service. Okay. We get just enough on the map so that Chegg buys us. All right. And then do it again. Rinse and repeat. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Yeah, I can, I can see it. This is a viable business model. I'm sure someone's thought of this before, and I'm sure we've never heard about them because they've been instantly been bought up. But that's kind of the goal, yeah, so good job. Right. Yeah, yeah, because you don't do easy, you don't buy EasyBib for like an aqua hire. It's not right. the crazy talent working at EasyBib that you need to <laughs> have on your it, team. It doesn't seem like it's that hard of a thing to create either. It's like mm-hmm. very... The format's very strict, which seems like it would make it very easy to make a service like that. Yeah, it's a lot of reading uh, meta tags on HTML. Yeah, and past that, it's just text boxes. Yeah. So the goal would be to create something that was even better at autofilling than all of the Chegg services. That is the goal. However, it is not necessary. Fair enough. If you can make it almost as good as the Chegg services, that will be enough. Yeah. All right, well, there's the million-dollar business plan. (laughs) I got a Rhodia notepad. There's not all too much to say about it, really. Um, It's really nice, soft paper, which I've really been enjoying. And also, it is just the right size to fit in my mail pockets, Um, (laughs) which makes it really nice because... Not really nice. um, Which makes it amusing to use kind of as a stuck out tongue in a way of like, haha, look at me, I can put this in my pocket and look at your tiny female pockets. <laughs> Has been talk- an exchange that happened multiple times with this little like, it's the Rhodia number 14 yeah. flip book. 
Uh, is do you put it in your front pocket or your back pocket? I goes all the way in my front pocket. Wow. Yeah. Uh, is it like field note sized? Uh, it's I'm not sure of the exact dimensions. It's probably about field note size, but a little like larger than that. Steven's holding up his hands so that I can get a general like size. iPhone iPhone six plus size. iPhone six plus, but a little wider, probably. Okay. All right. Yeah, I think that would fit in my pocket too. Um, it would definitely not fit in any female female pockets. It really just wouldn't. I have heard the gripes so many times, <laughs> and I don't feel your pain, but I can sympathize with your pain. Sorry, females. Yeah, I got a full size uh, Rodia notebook, which I love. I think it's so much better than your typical Staples recycled paper. You should still recycle paper, but if you buy the new paper, I mean, it has to come from somewhere, right? You can only recycle paper so many times. You're right. Yeah. So I don't feel bad about it. That's, that's an interesting argument to make, but I see where you're coming from. I, I, I don't expect everyone to stop using recycled paper, so I don't feel bad about it, which is not an entirely valid argument, but... Tragedy of the commons, I think? Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. let the commons be tragic. <laughs> I like my soft I paper. My... <laughs> <laughs> what specifically do you use it for? Or just uh, I take notes in class. Um, I've also used field notes just to write down things I need to remember, which was happening mostly at a point in which I didn't have a laptop. And so all my information was between my phone and my notebooks. Since then, I have migrated back into using electronic calendars and task managers. But so yeah, that's what the, how that's been going. Mm-hmm. I, I tried using bullet journaling and it does work really well for me, but not as well as OmniFocus and Google Calendar. Bullet journals don't have notifications. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You're absolutely correct. Coding, I think, is becoming a blue collar job. All right. And I think it's doing that faster than, say, an electrician became a blue-collar job, if it was ever not. Real quick, do you want to refresh me on uh, the like exact definition of blue-collar job versus white-collar or okay. no-collar, which I would say most computer work right now is no-collar? Taken literally, it would be no-collar, but I don't know what the classification would be. Maybe it's black-collar. Red hat, blue okay. collar, <laughs> bright pink socks, just the whole gamut. <laughs> Zach's been uh, filling in for me so I can look up the exact definition of blue collar. Um, the terms blue collar and white collar are occupational classifications that distinguish workers who perform manual labor from workers who perform professional jobs. Historically, blue collar workers wore uniforms, usually blue, and worked in trade occupations. So, mm-hmm. Instead of digging holes and fixing toilets, which are good jobs, yeah, you would be typing on a keyboard, repeating what you found out from your computer science class. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. I, yeah. So you're saying that there's not much. Um... You, you need minor education to do it. Basically, like you could go online and go on Khan Academy and say, "I want to learn how to code. Please help me learn how to code." Hmm. And in theory, you could get good at coding without any extra education yeah. beyond, like, high school. 
And again, there's nothing wrong with it. It's just like I always like pictured myself going into a field like something to do with computers, maybe something to do with math. Programming does both computers and math. Mm-hmm. But is that something I want to do? Is I do I want to be in a cubicle or in a whatever Google does with their little pods and Facebook yeah. with their open offices and Apple with the dark basements? And <laughs> <laughs> it's a spaceship, though. It's like, a spaceship. It's dark basements in a spaceship. <laughs> You're on like deck fifteen, but it's still a deck. <laughs> And eventually the AIs are going to learn how to do it, and we're going to be out of a job. And I mean, that's true of everything, though. Yeah, but I think sooner rather than later with things that involve computers already. Mm-hmm. Like, a computer would have a tough time being an electrician. Well, yeah, but, like, the Boston Dynamics robots would be better at it because they can just have, like, rubberized fingers and not have to worry about getting shocked. But they would need, like... But the AI part, like... Boss, I'm, as far as I can tell, Boston Dynamics is all algorithmic, not intelligent. If you're saying that coding and electrician are both blue-collar jobs that require roughly the same level of training in different places, wouldn't it be that the AI would be about the same level of difficulty to develop? Yes, except with electrician or plumbing or whatever, the traditional blue-collar jobs... You need to be on site and with a physical body. Mm-hmm. With coding, you can just be a computer. You don't need to have any motors. Yeah. But how are computers going to go to meetings, huh, Stephen? I... We got the weekly scrum meeting. How's the AI going to get to the weekly scrum meeting? Uh, I don't know. Maybe they'll hack the teleconference. I'm sure they're getting good at that, too. Yeah, probably. <laughs> so... If trends continue and Apple continues to support the pro user base less and less, I will probably be moving to a different operating system in the next decade. That's a long time window, but I see what you're saying. Uh, yeah, because I love my laptop. It's, an, it's a new MacBook Pro. It's the newest version as of February 25th, 2016. Um, <laughs> I can do everything I want to do on it, and definitely nothing more, though. Mm-hmm. And I will never be able to upgrade it, and I don't expect to anytime soon, but in the next decade, I might want to, yeah, or I might need to. So, if I do have to move away from Apple and get a Windows machine or a Linux machine, I will be reformatting it every month. That sounds like madness. Why? Because, as far as I can tell, that's the only way... To keep it fresh. Yeah? You take the important stuff off, and you just wipe it. Because new Windows machines work great. Mm-hmm. But after a few months, they're like a little less great. Just and a little of... less great. Until eventually they're unusable, and then you're like, what do I do? Well, this thing only had 4 gigs of RAM anyway. Let's just toss it and get a new one. So, if I want to make this last, I think I can reformat it every month. Just take the important stuff off. Put it in the cloud, because in a decade, everything will be in the cloud, and we won't even have computers. It'll just be in our head. I mean, you could feasibly just partition the drive, have all of the important, like, critical documents in the partition. That's a better idea. And just, like, you could honestly set up a script or something to routinely wipe yeah. the main running drive. That's a much better idea. Drive. So what, was there a, 
something that happened specifically that made you realize, wow, Apple just really hates pro users entirely. <laughs> I don't... Oh, okay. I don't think they hate them. I think that they have dollar signs in their eyes, and that's fair. They're a publicly traded company. And pro users, as much money as they spend on computers, do not spend as much on computers as the average users who just want a decent machine do. Because there are more average users. Yes. The more average people will be more average. Correct. It's just how it works. I, I really hit me when the new iPad Pro ads came out, which are people just in the classic Apple white room somewhere with a bit of furniture or something to make it like stand out. Um, and then they're holding up a big sign of whatever they tweeted about, like, geez, Apple's so awful, I can't even write a Medium post on my iPad. And then they, like, show them going to the App Store and getting the Medium app and typing something, and then they're like, oh my god, and then they throw the tweet away. And then it goes, iPad Pro, a full computer, or, like, something like that. Yeah. Something that is not true, because it... No, it's definitely not. It is, it is still an iPad, regardless if it has a keyboard or not. Is iPad based on Unix as well? Yes. Right, is iOS? I, I, I believe so. I... It's... It's a hybrid XNU, uh, which is not GNU, and is not pronounceable. So that's up, upsetting. Um, okay, so it's based... Yeah, it's the Unix-based um, operating system kernel. Same idea as GNU Linux. Um, it's just X is not Unix instead of GNU is not Unix. <sighs> and so that's where the term X, X, uh, X term and that kind of thing comes from. Oh, I didn't know that. And it was originally developed by Next, the Steve mm. Jobs spinoff company. Gotcha. Um, the Cubes. Yeah. So... They actually are. There is somewhere hidden far, far below a Unix shell. Yeah. And they will never, ever give you access to it because they do not trust you. That's lame. Yeah. Somebody, like, it's a thing you could do, though. If you jailbroke it and lost everything that Apple gives you. Like, do you like Touch ID? Not if you jailbreak it. Do you like, I don't know, like support of any kind don't jailbreak it you can still jailbreak it I'm sure there's a way and there's a still a decent sized community around doing it but yeah I don't I, personally I've never wanted I've never felt the need to jailbreak my iPhone however if my Mac was as locked down as an iPad is I would definitely jailbreak it yeah because I like doing things with sudo it's nice yeah All right, so Steven, I saw the Linus Tech Tips petabyte server video, but let's just say, if I hadn't, how might you describe it to me, hypothetically? Well, this dude named Linus has a YouTube channel in which he does a bunch of stuff with tech. Um, he gives tips, he, some might some, say. Sometimes he does, sometimes he doesn't. This time, he bought 110 terabyte hard drives to add up to a thousand terabytes of storage, also known as a petabyte. That's a lot. Yeah. I'm going to look up exactly how much a petabyte is. In bytes? In 
information that we can understand. Oh, okay. So how many videos, how many MP3 files kind of thing. Um, while you're looking that up, one misconception that you repeated there, I guess, is that Linus Tech Tips buys anything. Um, a good fraction of their stuff is sent in by sponsors. Um, yeah, you're probably right. I assumed he bought them just because I do not follow him very much. Yeah. Okay. So, let's see. According to whatsabite.com, one petabyte could hold approximately 20 million four-door filing cabinets full of text. It could hold 500 billion pages of standard printed text. It would take about 500 million floppy drives to store the same amount of data. That's a lot of floppy drives. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. It's a lot of data, and he is justified in having it. Yeah. And having that much data because he apparently records all of his videos in 8K and saves the raw footage, all of it. So, <laughs> I mean, as much data as that is, that's a, a pretty good use for it. Mm -hmm. When I uh, watched Linus Tech Tips, I hardly ever actually watch the tech reviews. I only watch the videos that they make that are like the... Uh, petabyte server video or they're doing a server cleanup video just more to look at the workflow that they use when they were setting up their new office they were going through their whole ingest process to get footage in and trying to make it as easy as possible so you could go straight from camera to editor with just like one plugging in of a cable that's cool um, and they are having some problems with that now uh, but I like the videos of Linus Tech Tips where they go into that kind of thing and the processes that they use. Yeah. Do you know how they're... I didn't see. Do you know how they're um, connecting all those drives? I, I saw that he was going to make it all look like one drive to the computer. Uh, Hardware-wise, I think... It's all one big RAID 0 array. Yeah. That, yeah. That's scary. Uh, for anyone who doesn't know... A RAID 0 array will distribute the data that you give it evenly amongst all the drives, or evenly-ish, which speeds up the writing of data, and it gives you a lot more storage to work with. But if one drive fails, then you have the entire batch, all the data that was on those drives is pretty much lost. I don't think they're doing RAID 0, then. They might be doing... Um Maybe it's like a maybe it's not a raid. I maybe it's one of the fancy not raid things that yeah. will act like raid. They they weren't going to use unraid because uh, unraid can't get that big. Understandably. Yeah. So they're they're using some different software to synthesize array essentially. But I would assume that they have enough tech smarts, being a YouTube tech channel, to at least go with. One backup of each drive. Right. So of the 100 drives, 50 of them are original copies and 50 of them are backups, essentially. Yeah. All right, yeah. yeah. And if he uses my method of backup, which I do not recommend, my current method is fill up the drives, double what you have by buying more storage because it keeps getting cheaper. Um, use that as a backup until you need more. Stop using that as a backup fill it up, and then get more backup. <laughs> this is not a good thing because there's a point in which you do not have any backups. Yep. You should probably use a cloud backup too, but I don't trust anyone, so... 
Do you think if, because um, like Backblaze or Carbonite or those different services, mm-hmm. a lot of them, if you hardwire in through USB or whatever, a single drive, it will back up that drive. Do you think that for some brief amount of time, they would be able to trick the Backblaze system into backing up one petabyte of storage by manually oh, wow. plugging in? It doesn't do NAS, which is what it currently is. But if you plugged in through USB... That... How fast is USB 3? Uh, Let's see. Faster than USB 2. <laughs> okay, so... It's about 5 gigabits per second. 5 gigabits per second over a petabyte? Over 8 petabyte gigabits. Yeah. This is too much math. Um... But it, it would take a long time to It would back take up a long sure. time. Not only would it take a long time, <laughs> I think at some point, Backblaze would be like, hey, wait a minute, this guy has been backing up for 17 days and is still writing new data. <laughs> also, uh, it looks like none of it is, is repeated. Yeah. I think we should get in contact with this guy and ask him why he's trying to DDoS us. <laughs> Very badly. <laughs> <laughs> also, that's a gigantic waste of bandwidth. I mean, they have bandwidth to spare, actually. At Linus Tech Tips? Yes. Yeah. They have multiple fiber lines in and out. For what? Uploading and downloading <laughs> YouTube videos? <laughs> I guess. Oh, no. Extreme efficiency? Maybe? More power to them, I guess. Um, I think... In his, uh, in his own home, he has just a really long USB-C thing leading from his computer, which is in one room, to his workstation, just his monitor and his keyboard and his mouse, which is on another floor. <laughs> because he's just that extravagant and he yeah, why not? needed a reason to use whatever product he was um, promoting. And it's really neat. Like, it's still a very cool video, but his whole... Uh, his whole home office is just the monitor, keyboard, mouse, and this really long USB cable <laughs> leading to somewhere else in the house. I'd do that. I do my best to hide all my external storage drives, mm-hmm. um, but I don't want to invest in extra USB cables, extra extenders, that is. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm just going to have to deal with hard drive noises. My five gigabyte is beginning to sing me the song of its people, so... Oh, no. Yeah, that's concerning, but it is backed up on Backblaze, so... Good. There you go, full circle. So, on the previous podcast, I mentioned a computer that we called Thor. It's very powerful as a NVIDIA Titan X which is pretty much top of the line for consumers. Uh, Intel Core i7 awesomeness, several flops. <laughs> At least a gigabyte of RAM, yeah. probably more. There, I'm pretty sure it's 32 gigs of RAM. Good RAM, it's not like the, it's not the crappy RAM. Anyway, I thought, just to see, I wasn't actually interested in making any money, but I want to see if Thor could mine Bitcoins at all. Oh, it can't. <laughs> it, I mean, it does way better than, like, any other computer I've ever worked with, but it, 
the amount of bitcoins it can mine is very not it's not substantial at all you could probably get some dogecoin with it or something though yes you could probably get dogecoin or litecoin or something like that yeah um so after like a day of letting it just crunch numbers for slush pool i decided I, i remembered a number file video about the next largest prime number that we found mm-hmm. and how the guy did it and he it was just that he is a professor at a certain university and he had all the computers running 24 7 on the campus he's had them all running this program in the background that just crunches numbers and sees if things are prime numbers mm-hmm. and keeps going and going and going and he just has they weren't very powerful computers there was just a lot of them yeah he didn't even need to network them. So I thought, let's put Thor to good use because we don't use it that often, unfortunately, and just let it crunch through giant prime numbers. I feel like a much more noble uh, thing to set it up with for when it's not being used is the Bonic at Home setup, mm-hmm. um, where you can use SETI at home or Rosetta at home. It's a whole line of different things where they'll send you um, proteins and you need to try folding different proteins to see if it's what they'll do um, or you receive a bit of information about space that they picked up on one of the radio telescopes and you just crunch the numbers on that to see if anything about it is abnormal looking for alien signals or yeah like what what would be abnormal about space yeah seti is the search for extraterrestrial intelligence oh okay i was joking but you were not no yeah okay (laughs) i understand (laughs) wow all right um yeah that's a good idea i like prime numbers though you're right (laughs) i honestly the like seti at home one is probably just about as useful as the prime numbers one yeah um but folding at home might be our rosetta at home um, yeah right that folds proteins that might one be might a little be, more uh, um, relevant to humans. <laughs> what? How, how are we going to talk the, to the aliens if we can't send them prime numbers, Zach? Uh, the width of an atom? Width of a hydrogen atom? I'm pretty sure that was our basis of communication. That's a pretty good one, actually. That was a Carl Sagan project, I think. Hmm. The, the Voyager one that they sent out, off into space... Um, had inscribed on it like a little plaque of like, hello, we are humans. But it, you know, it didn't say that. It just showed a human and like used the width of a hydrogen atom and said like, hey, this is one unit. Right. And so then it just like showed how many hydrogen atoms tall a human is. Several, I imagine. Many, many hydrogen atoms. Um, and so it just described as much as it could in this little, you know, not five by five inch plaque. That they got to stick onto okay. the satellite that has exited the solar system many times. I think XKCD has a full count on how many times All right. it's exited the solar system. We'll, we'll put that in the show notes. One thing that bugs me about the program that Thor is running, it doesn't support the GPU. So, it's crunching numbers with the CPU, Zach. Oh, Bad. That's not what the CPU... Well, it it's not not what the CPU does, but it's not what the CPU is good at. Yeah. The GPU is much better at doing that, especially a Titan X is much better than the yeah. CPU. But then I looked at it and I'm like, okay, maybe there's like an alternative one for a GPU. Nope, because it's all volunteer run and no one's made a GPU thing yet. Not one that can do massive prime numbers, only like smaller prime numbers. Hmm. All right. New, new open source? Or uh, that could be... 
the botnet that we install with our bibliography service. Oh, so not only are we making a scammy business, we're also making the scammy business uh, compute math. Gotcha. So is that just going to be like a little embedded JavaScript thing? Yeah. All right. It's just constantly running while you're on the page. Yeah, I don't... Yeah. <laughs> you... User would... Would they just blame Chrome? I, just like... Yeah, Chrome just eats up a lot of... I don't know. Honestly, my... That's why Facebook drains so much battery. Honestly, my computer always freezes whenever EasyBib is a tab in my Chrome. So, like, I wouldn't doubt it. It's probably what they're doing. That's that's Chegg's ultimate goal, really. Partially to, like, get students uh, affordable textbooks and whatever. Uh, and also to compute the next largest prime number for that spot in the Guinness Book of World Records. Yes, uh, it's Guinness. <laughs> Is Guinness World Records still relevant ever? Probably. I don't know. I had, like just learned the other day that that was actually made by Guinness Brewing Company oh. uh, to settle like bar bets. Oh, Did I didn't you? know that. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. There's a Chrome extension Ooh boy. called Data Selfie, and it watches you while you are on Facebook. I really thought sleep was going to be the next word, but I'm, I'm still interested. <laughs> uh, so what it does is it takes all the parameters that Facebook usually takes and puts that into stuff that you can see and not just Facebook can see. Mm-hmm. So the time you look at each post, the amount of likes you do, the things you click on, the stuff you type in, it's all stored in this Chrome app. And then you click on it and it shows you a little graph. And then it can make predictions about you using a different but similar algorithm that Facebook does. Hmm. So I'm going to put that in the show notes because I thought it was really cool. Yeah, that's really neat. So does that is that information already on Facebook somewhere? It's just it's not like shown in the HTML? I don't know. I don't know how it works. Okay. I do know that it requires you actually browsing Facebook to do it. Hmm. It couldn't take any previous history. And it couldn't, but yeah, so that's how it works one of two ways. It either watches things you click on, if it's Facebook, in theory, I hope. Mm-hmm. Ah, <laughs> um, I should have looked. I'm a security nut and didn't even think about looking. <laughs> if it, this thing is literally watching your every move online, I just realized. That's pretty much every Chrome app, though. You're right. Extension. You're right, and I trust them. I trust EasyBib to be in my Chrome extensions. It's, that's that's where all your CPU is going <laughs> is using your Chrome extension to mine for Bitcoin or prime numbers. I still can't imagine what Chegg would have to do. Why Chegg would need prime numbers? <laughs> like, <laughs> like Bitcoin makes much more sense, but maybe it's prime numbers. Maybe they're trying to be good Samaritans and. Uh, 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 uh. Uh. SHA-1 is bad. Don't use it. It's not that bad. It's kind of bad. Okay. Those were all very conflicting statements, and I would like some more uh, more information on all of them. So, SHA-1 is a hashing algorithm, which means it's a one-way function that takes data and makes it completely illegible and seemingly random. Mm-hmm. You can't reverse it. There's no, like, it's... 
It's comparable to the remainder of a division problem and trying to find the, the starting two numbers from the remainder. You can't do it. So what it's used for is comparing strings that you're not supposed to know. Mm-hmm. So in theory, Google doesn't know my password. It knows a hash of my password. When I type in my password on Google, it says, okay, I'm going to hash your the password you typed in and compare it to the hash that I have stored. And if they're the same, I will let you in. If they are not the same, if it's even one character off, it will be a completely different hash and Google will say, nope, you can't get in. Mm-hmm. And the, the hashing happens just like on your computer, client side. Yes, in theory, yeah. <laughs> Ideally. If, it, if it's uh, implemented well, yeah. Um, Server-side hashing, please don't. No, 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 please, yeah, no. Anyway, SAJ1 is a fairly old hashing algorithm. It was developed by the NSA to do just that, provide security for passwords and other pieces of information that neither that you one party should not have but needs Mm -hmm. but it is becoming very easy to crack SHA1 just by brute forcing so you guess A no is it AA no is it AAB no is it AAC no and you just keep going like that until you find the right password Mm -hmm. and computers are very good at that and they're getting so good at that algorithm that Google is now in their Chrome browser putting a little not secure tag on sites that are encrypted with, not encrypted, but have a certificate encrypted with SHA-1. Or if they haven't done it, they will be doing it soon. I think it's it's coming. Yeah. And just recently, a few days ago, Google made a collision, which is a problem. Because if we're using the remainder analogy, it's like having... 5 divided by 4 is 1 remainder 1. Mm-hmm. And 3 divided by 2 is still 1 remainder 1. That's a collision. Because yeah. there's two pieces of information resulting in the same, the same answer, basically. Mm-hmm. That's like, sh- usually that's pretty harmless, right? Yes. Because it's very hard to do stuff like that. To make something malicious. But if you were able to, you could not guess the right password... And still get in. Hmm. Or if you are downloading a piece of software and on their website they have a little thing that says SHA1 and a little colon and the, the hash. And you wanted to verify that you downloaded the right thing and no one gave you the wrong piece of software that is actually malware or a virus. You could just hash the thing you downloaded and compare it to the thing you got from the site. Hmm. If someone figured out a collision with their piece of software, which is a virus, and a trusted piece of software that could give you the wrong thing, and you wouldn't have any idea. Yeah. That's why it's a problem. So, if you're using SHA-1 in any way, shape, or form, please don't. It's really not that hard to switch. It's SHA-2, SHA-3, if you can. It's not too available yet. The good news is that um, the Google Collision is only relegated to PDF. Yeah. The, the thing that they proved they could make work consistently is only on PDF files. But for numerous other reasons, SHA-1 is still not the best one to implement. And there are a lot of better ones that are mm-hmm. just as easy. I am putting a link in the agenda, and I think you should look at it. All right. So it's a tweet 
with a screenshot of a Wikipedia article, it looks like. And it is an example of a SHA-1 collision. And it's two images that are definitely not the same, but give a... Uh, Similar hash. Or they, they give the ex- same hash. The exact same hash with two completely different images. I'll put it in the show notes. Yeah, that's worrying. Yeah. To say the least. It's not an easy thing to do by any means. Mm-hmm. But it's possible and that's a problem. Sometime within the next 90 days, I think Google is releasing the code on how to do it. Oh, yeah, yeah. Be it just the <laughs> common security practices. You expose a bug, tell the people who are writing the software that has the bug, say, hey, this is a problem, and then 90 days from then, you publish the proof that that bug exists so they've had yeah. time to... To fix it. Fix it. Yeah, and they do that because if they don't, someone will, and they won't tell anyone about it. Mm-hmm. If Google just kept it to themselves, if Google didn't look for security flaws in SHA-1, then someone would... And they wouldn't, they might not tell anyone using SHA1 about it and be malicious. The show notes just say antibiotic resistant bacteria dragon, uh, which is not the full article title. It's an I effing love science article. Uh, big problem that we are starting to have with um, humans and the whole Medicine. staying alive thing is that uh, bacteria in order to continue their own reproductive cycles, are getting better and better and better at resisting antibiotics. How are they Um, doing that? They aren't doing anything, but it's happening because uh, as we use antibiotics, they aren't exactly doing it, but it is happening through the process of just medicating people who are sick. As you use a medicine, specifically an antibiotic, it kills off almost all of the bacteria that are in your system. But if you don't take the full dosage, like many people don't, because, hey, I'm feeling better, I don't need to take these pills anymore, the remaining bacteria will have an increased resistance just evolutionarily to those antibiotics that you've been taking. Uh, And so those antibiotics will no longer be as effective. And so if the cycle continues and continues and continues, eventually we will have bacteria that are 100% resistant to, uh, I was just reading The Handmaiden's Tale. Handmaid's Tale? I was just reading The Handmaid's Tale. Uh, and they use a line that is, a breed of syphilis no molds we threw at it could kill, which is a very good line. Um, very scary line, but a very good line. <laughs> uh, and so that's the idea, is that eventually nothing would be able to defeat this. The good news is uh, that's a big problem, and a lot of people recognize that's a big problem, so we've been working on solutions to it. Uh, One of those solutions is using something called CAMPS, the cationic antimicrobial peptides, uh, which most creatures have, uh, but Komodo dragons specifically have 48 cationic antimicrobial peptides. I'm going to stop you right there, Zach, because I think we need to read the title of this article. All right, that's a great plan. (laughs) The title is The Blood of Dragons Could Destroy Antibiotic Resistance. So yeah, these these camps are in the blood of these Komodo dragons. Um, And we are starting to synthesize a few of them just from what we've been able to find in their bloodstreams. Um, And a lot of these different camps that we've been synthesizing have been able to defeat the superbugs. 
Um, so that is the current situation. We're using, in controlled tests, the camps of Komodo dragons to defeat bugs that are immunized, essentially, to penicillin. Informational session over. Uh, as a discussion now, this is kind of still worrying because it's just prolonging the problem. Uh, yeah, that's my initial thought actually too because I don't under I don't see any reason that the bacteria couldn't become resistant to the Komodo dragon blood stuff. Mm-hmm. The camps, the caps, camps. It is camps. Yeah, I'm. It, I mean it. It's good for when we have a, when there is a super bacteria that we can't kill at all. Mm-hmm. Maybe we'll start using the stuff, and maybe it'll be ready by then. But uh, at the moment, it, not only is it not ready, but it won't really help. Yeah, it'll just lead to essentially an arms race against bacteria. Yeah, and an arms race that we are not good at winning. Like, yeah, we are good at making weapons. We are not as good at making medicine as we are at weapons, in my opinion. Maybe I am wrong about that, but it seems like we are a lot good at killing people than we are at saving people. Yes, but also because it serves our purposes. And so I think a lot of the major advancements in science happened during wartime, just because that's what you needed so you didn't die. Um, So I feel like this would also cause... A, a superbug of some sort would also cause many major advancements in the field of science. Yeah, hopefully. Although I don't think crisis is the only way we should be advancing in science. This for, is true. For example, uh, maybe we should, like, I don't know. Fund science agencies? Yeah. <sighs> Listen, I don't think that scientists need more motivation to get things done. I think the rest of the people need more motivation to help scientists get get more things done. Scientists need means. Yes. Not motivation. Scientists will have sufficient motivation whether or not there is a crisis. Yeah. Uh, One last point is that bacteria is definitely a noun. And a good rule of thumb is not to declare war on a noun. Who said that the first time? I'm not sure. It was definitely... Not Winston Churchill. No, John Green. It was in uh, his Crash Course World History. That sounds right. Either that or U.S. History when he was talking about... It would be be World History. I never watched Crash Course U.S. History. Yeah, it was World History. He was talking about the war on something, and then he compared it to the war on drugs and the war on terror and how it's really not working in either case. All right. So, (laughs) as the Green brother... So wisely put it, never declare war on a noun. I've been doing a few things at the same time. Crazy. More or less the same time. That's, yeah, you're like violating causality if they're all at the exact same time. Bad plan. Um, I was reading my AP government textbook in which we are learning about the court system. Mm Mm-hmm. And I was also reading Isaac Newton's The Principia, which is the book in which he published his findings on his famous uh, laws of motion. Also, the book in which he invented calculus Mm -hmm. to plot the motions of the planets and such. He was a cool dude. He's a lot smarter than I am. I recognize this. 
I needed lots of annotation to help me get through that book. Mm -hmm. Anyway, specifically, Isaac Newton was writing about uh, centripetal force and how it only is active when an object is spinning and has centrifugal force. Mm -hmm. So centripetal force only happens when there's centrifugal force. Centripetal force is the string that you twirl over your head with a weight attached to it. Centrifugal force is the, is the thing that dr draws the weight to the outside. Okay. So, how does this relate to the court system? I'm, I'm really wondering. This is a stretch. I'm going to admit that. But the court system can't do anything unless one of the other two branches of government also do something before that. Or someone brings a case to it. Mm -hmm. But someone else has to act first before the court system can do anything. It is a centripetal force in government. Yeah, it's it's a reactionary measure for sure. It was just an interesting. I, I like the parallels. Yeah, parallel that I found, and I it is not. It, I would not use it in any metaphor because in either case, if I am writing an essay on the court system, I will not be including centripetal force in it because. If, the demographics just aren't there. If you need to pad the word count, you could go through explaining all of centripetal <laughs> force. That's better. Yes. <laughs> you, I should do that. How have you been sleeping, Zach? Not. How's that for an answer? I am working on managing my time better. <laughs> Let's phrase it like that. And last Monday? Time gets weird when you stay up past midnight. I was up at 4 a.m. finishing up a math project that was due the next day. And after the 4 a.m. math project was done, I had to <laughs> write a, an essay for honors, um, my honors class okay. on Milwaukee. Um, so yeah, that's what I've been up to. That's been my main project. Getting my sleep sort of under control. The honors, honors paper did not get done to completion. It got about halfway and then just became a bulleted list. And then I just wrote like a word <laughs> just in there at the very end. And then that, I, I went to bed because... It's funny what sleep does to you. Like yeah. What happens when you don't do it. Um, so up until about 4 a.m., the... Four Sigmatic Coffee really does wonders. Um, you can keep going on a while for a while on that. It's it's very good, um, but I still would not recommend staying up past midnight one a.m. It's about the safe limit. I don't listen to myself very <laughs> frequently, so that's what I've been working on. Oh, I mean, all right, I. Also use for it Sigmatic, mm -hmm. and what it, what it is, is it's water that tastes like coffee, but is made out of mushrooms. There's actual coffee in there, too. That, too. But it's neurotropic mushrooms that give your brain a boost, just like caffeine does, except it's not caffeine, it's the same type of thing as hallucinogenic mushrooms, except it doesn't make you hallucinate, it just makes you feel like you have caffeine yeah without actual caffeine because we've all built up a tolerance by now i mean i haven't i just started on the four sigmatic 
still. I personally like it better. I think it lasts longer than caffeine mm. does. And I think it the different types of mushrooms do different things. Like, there's only really one kind of caffeine. And it only does the one thing. While these different types of mushrooms do different things. Like, there's the basically just caffeine coffee. Mm-hmm. Or mushrooms, that is. And then there's the focus mushrooms. Yeah. And there's also the sleepy mushrooms, which is like NyQuil, except without all the cold stuff. Those those are available in a different product. It's not that the coffee also has the sleeping mushrooms. Yeah, no, you're, you're <laughs> correct. It's just really cool, and I enjoy when I use it. I try to use it sparingly because I do not want to build up a tolerance to it. Mm-hmm. But yeah, for those days where you're like, I have so much to do, what am I going to do? That's the time to take your neurotropic coffee. Or the days after that when you, like, fall out of bed after your third (laughs) snooze. Those days it's good, too. I had a, last semester, very much the similar thing. I was up working on an honors paper. I actually think it was also 4 a.m. that time. At least 4.04 because I made a stupid tweet about it. Um, And the next morning, I got up and went to class and was essentially dead. And so by noon, I was just not having it, but I still had something that I needed to get done. So I went to the Taco Bell on campus and got a Mountain Dew. And I like filled up the whole cup with Mountain Dew, brought it back to my dorm, emptied a packet of the Four Sigmatic coffee into it, and just mixed that up. And that kept me awake for the rest of the day, but did not taste good at all. <laughs> So no, definitely not. So that is a recommend in very dire situations. <laughs> so while we're on sleep, you mentioned last time that you fall asleep listening to podcasts. Yeah. And I tried that the next day and always was worried that I would knock my phone like off my bed and it would break and everything would die or that I would like strangle myself with the power cord in my sleep because I'd have to charge it while I'm sleeping otherwise yeah. it doesn't get charged um, so I'm wondering Zach mechanically how do you sleep while listening to podcasts uh, it's gone through quite a few iterations actually first of all what size bed do you have at the moment queen but I am expecting to have a twin sized dorm room soon yeah okay so with the queen it wasn't a problem for me Um, plug in the phone, phone goes in like a top left corner of the queen mattress, um, and then I actually would use one of those little sleep tracker apps. Um, So it needed to be on the mattress anyway. I I actually wore headphones for a while doing it, and then just as I was like, if I could feel myself falling asleep, I would have to like yank out the headphones so that the little play button on them didn't accidentally get pressed in the middle of the night and I'd run through all of my podcasts by the next morning. Uh, I didn't mention that I use earbuds eventually like got a room far enough away from people that I could just play the, the sound quietly and it wouldn't be much of a problem for me. And so then your problems were knocking the phone off of the bed yeah. and strangling yourself with the power cord, neither of which I have ever worried about before. So like, well, I mean, I'm not too worried about the strangling part, but I'm actually worried about knocking my phone off the bed because my earbuds are not long enough to reach the nightstand the mm-hmm. power cord is long enough to reach the bed yeah and i just think every time it, but it's not like long enough to reach over me to the other side of the bed like, 
So what are the mechanics of your sleep? Do you just not plop the pillow right in the middle of the queen mattress? And no, I sleep on one side of the bed. <laughs> I, I, I'm interested. I want a survey now. I want to know how many people who sleep by themselves in a queen size, queen size mattress sleep in the middle versus the edges. Yeah, pillow just always goes right in the middle for me. Right, whatever. I think you're weird, but I'm sure you think I'm weird, so... I mean, I get it. So so you essentially have a twin and then another bit of mattress on the side of you. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, I understand what you're thinking right now, but... <laughs> now just say it. That makes way more sense. Why don't I do it your way? <laughs> I don't understand. I don't understand now. Why did I do it? Why did Why did I ever do it on? I guess like I've always had like four pillows, like two for one side and two for the other. Yeah. And the four pillows do not go in the middle, nor do they like. Just use one pillow. I need at least two. Do you have like really thin pillows, and then you stack them up and lay on your side, or yeah. do you lay on your back? Okay. Side. Yeah. All right. This yeah. isn't relevant at all. <laughs> it's anyway. So. Um, so the next iteration headphones come out. So my phone is just sitting next to me on the bed as I fall asleep. Usually it's like almost tucked underneath the pillow. So it's pretty close to me. Okay. So I don't worry about it falling off the bed too much. And also if it did, my mattress isn't up way too high, so it wouldn't be much of a fall. And then once I got to college, I, same deal phone just pressed up pretty much underneath the pillow. And then... The Nexus USB-C charger, USB-C to USB-C charger, just decided it didn't want to work one day. I don't know which part of it it is, and to get a new one that is only certified to work with the Pixel uh, is like $36 that I don't have. Oh, I did not see that coming from a, a Google product. Yeah. That seems weird. So right now I'm working with three inches of USB-A to USB-C that I plug into my... Three inches? That's not three inches. You're right. That's, I mean, it's more than three inches, but still not very much. Yeah, maybe a foot, a little bit less than a foot. Yeah. Okay. So as of right now, I am working with about a foot of USB-A to USB-C, which does not reach from the plug up to my bed, so I can't do that. I haven't been sleep tracking recently because of that. But it is long enough to reach from my little surface dock that I have mounted to my wall onto the desk. So at this point, what I do is I put it on the sleep timer set it on my desk. I'm in the only person in my room. So if I just put it on at the right volume, okay. nobody complains. So I feel like step one is don't use headphones. Okay. Which yeah. is... Makes sense. Yeah. Now I'm curious. You said you use a sleep tracker. Do you ever do anything with that data? Not really. Um, the main thing that I used it for was... The app that I used, Sleep for Android, Sleep as Android, I think it was called Sleep as Android, which is a really weird title. It's like powering down. You're just turning off like an Android. What? Whatever. I guess. <laughs> um, so that app, you could set alarms to go off within a certain period. You could say, oh, within this half hour, just whenever I am the most active in my sleep, that's the good time to wake me up. So I use the sleep tracking more for that, um, just for noticing when my when I was coming out of a cycle. Okay. Other than that, it's been useful a few times just to look at 
general trends over a week or over a few weeks, like usually I get better sleep on Wednesdays or whatever. All right. That's interesting. But overall, no, I never really put it to good use, partially because I never got consistently week by week by week yeah. information. Yeah, I, I did sleep tracking, tracking for a while, and then I was like, how many times have I looked at this graph over the last couple months? Twice? <laughs> I can probably stop doing this. It's not actually helping me that much, and it's not adding that much of a degree of complexity, but the way my iPhone does notifications, if it somehow got turned off during the night, my alarm wouldn't go off. Oh. Because of the weirdness with notifications, like there's only one app that can override the Do Not Disturb, and that's the alarm clock app, the official alarm clock app, hmm. and not the sleep tracking alarm clock app. All right. Which I guess makes sense. You don't want pe- apps to override your Do Not Disturb, but there was definitely a podcast I listened to, and they were discussing it'd be nice to have tiered notifications. Mm-hmm. I actually am still using the same app, even though I'm not using the sleep tracking tools, because the alarm has options. It isn't just an alarm and you get up and like you either turn it off or you snooze it. You can set it so that to do anything to the alarm, snooze it or turn it off, you need to perform a math problem Mm. or uh, scan a QR code or whatever. And so for a while, the performing a math problem worked. I would get up because like I had to do some math in my head. And then one morning I had slept through my alarm and apparently done math essentially in my sleep. <laughs> yeah. So I needed a new solution and that new solution was NFC. So because different apps can use the NFC chip in okay. uh, an Android phone, you can get an NFC chip and wire it up to be the one that turns off your alarm. So now I need to actually physically get out of bed and go hit my phone to an NFC card. All right. Yeah, that could be, that could definitely be useful. I like the QR code idea too. It seems like it's about the same idea. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I like snoozing too much for that. I, I mean, me too. That's why I have it. (laughs) (laughs) Last week, last podcast, actually, uh, last podcast, about mid-podcast, I just decided to change up the way that my to-do list worked um, and start setting things at levels of importance. That has had some mixed results. I, it worked for a few days, and it now has just devolved, essentially, and come back and g- devolved. So it needs some fine-tuning for sure, but it's a step in the right direction, I think. So one of the problems that it has caused is that if there are three things that are due the next day, then they will go on the very important list. And I can get those done for sure, but then in my brain, it looks to me like my list is only three items long. Mm. Even if it would be much more beneficial to get those three things done and do some reading that isn't necessarily due, but it's a good thing to do. Yeah. And so whatever the law is that tasks will expand to take up the amount of time they're allotted kicks right into effect and I've got the whole day for three tasks. So each task takes a very large amount of time when I know that I could have done them in a different amount of time, a smaller amount of time. Huh. So do you think a granular importance would be helpful? No. I think part of it is having enough 
items e- the right amount of items each day that all of the items can show up in my window. Okay. In my view window, so I can see at least generally what they are. Uh, great thing, something that would be superb for that, is if the Windows Todoist app could actually have expandable subprojects. As of right now, you can create subprojects, but in the main view, you cannot view them unless they are also set as due today. Gotcha. <laughs> so once that happens, I think it will be more feasible to do this. And then I've got, these are the things that definitely need to happen, and these are all of the things that should happen, but they aren't mission critical. All right. So far, I've been keeping my the same system I talked about last time on the podcast. It, it's just you flag things are, that are important to OmniFocus, and I get a little uh, red circle on my icon mm-hmm. if something that I didn't mark as important is still due. Because you can do that. You can set it to be due but not important. And yeah. I don't usually do that, but sometimes I'll forget. And I will, but it'll still remind me that, hey, this is due tomorrow, dummy. One of the unfortunate things about Todoist is it doesn't have due dates. It just has. The, the due dates and the date at which it appears in your today view are the same day. Okay. Uh, something I do like about OmniFocus is it has defer dates. I'm not sure if Todoist does. But you can say, I do not want to even think about this task until 4 p.m. on Saturday because it will just bug me mm-hmm. until then. Like, I can't do anything about this until 4 p.m. on Saturday. Don't show me it. Yeah, so there definitely is that. It's just, It will still pop up It's on Saturday, but it'll just have a little 4 p.m. flag in the front of it. Okay. And then it'll turn red if it's past 4 p.m. All right. All right. Different implementations. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So I want to talk about Lego Batman, and this should be pretty spoiler-free. Um, although I might say something like a funny thing happened in the beginning of the movie, which I'm not <gasps> saying. I'm not saying that definitely that might have happened, that might have not happened. You don't know. You don't know. Anyway, I did really like Lego Batman. A lot of people didn't like Lego Batman, but I thought it was... I wasn't, like, rolling on the ground laughing, but Mm -hmm. I thought it was funny enough. And there were a lot of references to mostly other Batman movies that I thought were just awesome. Because they're, like... They redid the Batman versus Superman, like, they're about to punch each other in the fist shot, but Mm -hmm. in Lego. Oh, yeah. With the, like, Lego rain and, like... (laughs) And Batman's glowing eyes being, like... Anyway, it was it was just very like cute and I am glad to have watched at least the most recent Batman trilogy, the Dark Knight one, mm-hmm. because it makes the most references to that, I think, and how like in there he's very dark and he's portrayed at least as very dark, not very uh, friendly, basically. <laughs> Being more like Batman is a vigilante criminal, not Batman is a superhero. Yeah. While in previous Batman movies, he's been a superhero. Is there at least one reference to shark repellent? Yes. Neat. All right, I'm in. (laughs) Um, That's a spoiler. I'm sorry. (laughs) Having not seen any like Batman movies all the way through, Mm -hmm. do you think I would still enjoy it? Yes, because if you know... 
even the general idea of Batman. Mm-hmm. Okay, so it's a dude with a lot of money. Mm-hmm. He's fit, he's good at fighting, and he goes around Gotham, which is a super crime-ridden city, and just beats up criminals because the police won't do it themselves. All right. But no, it's it's really funny. It's cute in the way that the Lego movie was, but not as like heartfelt as Lego movie was, mm-hmm. which I was expecting. I wasn't expecting it to be more of the Lego movie magic. Yeah. It did have the Lego style though which is like everything is a joke everything is a joke it it happened with the lego video games and now it's happening with the lego movies they're taking a property and they're just making fun of it but not in a crude way yeah in a very kid-friendly way and it's good yeah yeah all right i'm excited to see that Well, that about does it. Yeah. If you would like to hear more of this podcast and you aren't already subscribed, you can check out us on all of the other podcasting apps, the Apple Podcasting Store. What is it called? iTunes. iTunes. Really? Isn't there like a podcast app though? Yes, but... It's just an extension of iTunes? Yes, it is. So... You can find us on iTunes, Google Play Music. Is it Google Play Music or is it Google Play Podcast? It's Google Play Music. You're right. You're right. <laughs> so you can find us on iTunes, Google Play Music, uh, Stitcher. You can go directly to the RSS feed, which is at stephenberry.rocks slash worryingbugs. Other podcast clients could be Overcast. Pocket Cast. Pocket Cast. Dog Catcher. There's so many. There's and that's so a good many. thing. Because we don't want monopolies in podcasting. What if it's a board game podcast? <laughs> Zach, why you have to ruin me? Anyway, that's I'm getting cut. It's getting cut anyway, so I'm just rambling. I'm, it's cu- if I'm rambling, it's getting cut. Fine. I liked that, though. Yes. Um, all right. And if you'd like to get in contact with us about anything that you heard or didn't hear or thought that you heard but actually didn't hear and will be very confused, but... Uh, my Twitter is at the puns guy. You can find it in the show notes. My Twitter is at not Stephen Barry. G- g- goodbye. G- g- goodbye. Goodbye.